Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to Something to Talk About. I'm Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining us here on the Nachum Siegel Network. We're here every Thursday afternoon with an encore presentation on Sunday, giving you something to think about and something to talk about. The word Hatzalah in Hebrew means saving, rescuing. But the word triggers something even bigger here on the East Coast. The life-saving rescue teams that serve as EMTs and paramedics in our neighborhoods and surrounding areas. And unfortunately, while we've seen tough times and experienced the need for emergency medical teams to mobilize, that need extends also to our brothers and sisters in Israel, where United Hatzalah is the mechanism that gears up to save lives. United Hatzalah was started as an Hatzalah organization in Jerusalem's Bayat Vagan neighborhood, but after several years it became the driving force behind uniting the Israeli Hatzalah chapters. United Hatzalah comprises more than 2,000 volunteer medics, with an average response time of three minutes, working around the clock on weekdays, Shabbos, and Chagim to save lives. Their volunteers treat more than 200,000 people a year, 25% of whom are in critical, life-threatening condition. But if you think three-minute response time is fast, the group wants to get that time down to 90 seconds, and you can help. In a couple of minutes, we'll tell you how. Today, we welcome Aaron Watson, one of three people giving of their time to raise funds and awareness for United Hatzalah. He's going to tell you about the Race to Save Lives, a very special event coming up on Sunday, June 9th. Aaron currently studies for a BA in finance at Yeshiva University. He's an alumnus of MTA and Yeshiva Nativ Aryeh, and he's going to tell you why he got involved in the Race to Save Lives and why he is involved in several other Zionistic organizations. Aaron, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Wendy. So I have to ask you, why did you get involved in United Hatzalah? So about three years ago, my friend Alex Goldberg and I were in it, were in Tel Aviv hanging out, um, and we were approached by J.J. Cool, friend of Alex Goldberg, and he said, you know, you guys are in Israel for the year. You're going to have a good time. You're going to learn a lot, but why not do something more? Why not get involved in a charity? So we went around Israel viewing uh, a few charities, uh, a few organizations, and when we got to Hatzalah, it was extremely impressive. They showed us some very cool technology, which we'll get into. Um, they showed us how the the minimal funds of just $3.5 million can save 200,000 lives a year. If you do the math, it's only $16 per life. Um, and we really just thought it would be a great investment to um, – to start something for our friends and for all the students that are in Israel for the year to gain more than just learning in Israel for the year and um, help out help out United Cell of Israel. So what were you able to do there while you were in Israel? So when we were in Israel, we started the first race to save lives. Um, and we, we started off with a small goal of $25,000, which was to raise funds for one ambicycle. Um, we ended up raising a quarter million dollars. Wow. And we bought 10 ambicycles. Wow. Which dropped the average response rate in Jerusalem by a few seconds. So that was pretty cool. Um, and Where did you race? We raced in uh, Gan Soccer, which is a park in Jerusalem right across from the Wolfson Towers. And we had 500 students um, wow. from all over Israel. 
we had. How did you get the word out? How did you publicize? You're in Israel for the year, I guess, a, a couple of years ago. So social media? We Yes, we did use social media. We had a Facebook page, Twitter page. Um, we had flyers. But um, the most effective way we were communicating was with our friends who are in all different schools. So we had, you know, friends in Beit Shemesh spreading the word. We had friends in Jerusalem spreading the word. We had friends even in Sfat spreading the words. And they really just all got their friends involved. Um, they all loved the idea. And that's that's why we were so successful. That's pretty amazing. What was the reaction of the United Hatzalah team when you came to me and you said, we've got all this money for you to buy all this equipment? <laughs> they were they were quite thrilled. And they you know wanted us to do it again. And we, we were thrilled to do it again. So the following year, I was there for half a year, um, Shana Bet, and we got a few more students involved, um, Sarah Manobaum, um, David Silber, and Ethan Herrenstein. They ran that race, and they, they upped us one, a little bit. Oh, they gosh. raised $300,000 oh, and gosh. got about 600 students to run the race. And, and the money that was raised through those two races was from sponsors or it was from people donating X amount of dollars per, per mile, or how did that work? So we actually had a unique strategy. We, what we do is we get matching funds from donors, um, and we tell parents. So this is where the BA in finance comes in. <laughs> <laughs> yes. So what we do is we, ha- we provide incentives for um, all these donors who ca- are capable of giving, you know, $1,000, $2,000, even $10,000 um, by saying, hey, listen, if you donate $10,000, $20,000 is going to go to this cause. Um, so that was we, we've seen that being pretty effective over the past few years. And what we did for this, um, this coming race, we've gotten triple triple funders. Wow. So any every dollar you donate towards our cause, three dollars is going towards the organization. So everything is adding up pretty fast, and um, we're we're getting to our goal of five hundred twenty thousand dollars pretty pretty fast. My gosh! So let's bring you back now to your you finished the race in Israel, the first race to save lives. And did you think about this becoming an annual event? The first the time? time, we did not. We just, we wanted to get more involved in Israel. We loved Hatzalah, as I said, and we just wanted to do something while we were there for a year in Israel. And, you know, because it was such a success and Hatzalah wanted us to do it again, um, we said, you know, we, we got it. We got to do it. This was so successful. We got to, we got to do it again. So we got a whole new team. Um, and they, they crushed it also. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. So, so now you decided to bring the race to save lives to the New York area. And what, what is your goal this year? So our goal this year is to raise funds for 20 ambicycles, which, um, will cost about $520,000. Um, we want to get about 1500 runners at Roosevelt Island, which is where the race will be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's a 5K run. It's a 5K run, which is only 3.2 miles. Yeah, how trained you do you have to be for a 5K run? A- anyone can do it. And, you know, for the listeners out there who might be wary because they hear, you know, race, they hear marathon, they get scared because they're not runners. So you're saying anybody can do it. Anyone can do it. We, we, were, we were having people there who 
have never run in their lives do it. And, you know, worst comes to worst, you just walk it. It's not a big deal. And at the end, there will be, you know, tons of food sponsored by A&H Hot Dogs. We're going to have um, a few events there, which we're going to announce a little bit later, as soon as everything's finalized. And So um, spectators will have something to do there, aside spect- from watching exactly, the race. They'll exactly. Be- There'll be a whole event going on. At the end, we're going to have a DJ, uh, thanks to John Zarr, DJ ZJ New York. Cool. Um, yeah, and we're going to have... love a- music. Yeah. <laughs> so, so we're going to have a bunch of things to do there. It's going to be a real fun day. Um, again, it's June 9th at 10 a.m. It's going to go from, t- from actually registration opens at 9.15. So it's going to start at 9.15 and it's going to go all the way till 12. So it'll be a real fun morning. Um, and we really hope to get about 1,500 participants out there. Do we have so, participants already? Yes, we have about 200 participants signed up so far. And we are expecting to get about 1,500 at the race. So, so you got to reach out to all your friends in all your in all schools all over the exactly. place, like you did in Israel. How many runners did you have the first year? 500. 500. And does the race still go on in Israel, or? Well, we're moving it over here. Right. Yeah. And this is your third race here in New York. Well, is this it? is the first race in New York. The first. The third two race in, in general. In Jerusalem, and this is the first one in New York. So let's talk for a minute about the cause, United Hatzalah. Um, I had an opportunity recently to hear EMT and founder of United Hatzalah, Ellie Beer, talk about why he started the organization. So I just want to play you a little clip from uh, a presentation that Ellie Beer gave, and, and let's hear your reaction. I grew up in a small neighborhood in Jerusalem. When I was six years old, I was walking back from school on a Friday afternoon with my older brother. We're passing by a bus stop. We saw a bus blow up in front of our eyes. The bus was on fire. And many people were hurt and killed. I remember an old man yelling to us and crying to help us get him up. Just He just needed someone helping him. We were so scared and we just ran away. Growing up, I decided I want to become a doctor and save lives. Maybe that was because of what I saw when I was a child. What do you think about what Ellie Beer has to say about how he started the organization? So I actually spoke to Ellie about you know how he started the organization and all that stuff. So what what he he actually saw a terrorist attack firsthand, and he wanted to get more involved. I was privileged to go on a call myself in Israel wow. when we were going to plan the first race. I was on the back of an amicycle, um, going to Gan Soccer, and all of a sudden we got a call, and the guy, the our medic, just took off. I didn't know what was going on. I just know he got a call, and we were going about 90 kilometers per hour through traffic, weaving in and out of the lanes, and we got to a. Um, a car and we saw a woman having a seizure and this this woman was having a diabetic attack wow. and our medic ha- went into his amicycle took out his um his bag that has pretty much everything that a um a, an ambulance has except for a stretcher got out a sugar packet gave it to her and um saved her life so you know I know that Ellie's vision was to go out and do this, help out Israel, save as many lives as possible. And not just that, he doesn't want to just save lives in Israel. He, he wants to save lives everywhere. So there are other countries out there in uh, Panama, Brazil, 
um, India and now Harvard have this um, system in place where you have the ambicycle and technology that Hatzalah has built in their countries or school or campus yeah. rather. And that's really what Ellie wants to do. He want, not only wants to save lives in Israel and make an impact there, but really in the, in the entire world. And that's what he's going and doing. Yeah, so let's tell people about this ambicycle because it's something that's unique to United Hatzalah. And um, if people want to see what an ambicycle looks like, um, if you search Ellie Beer at TedMed, you can see Ellie Beer presenting a live ambicycle. So basically it looks like a motorcycle, and it's got a big box on the back. And you're saying it has everything that a regular ambulance has except the stretcher. Yeah, it really does. It's got it's got defibrillators. It's got band-aids. It's got sugar packets. It's got really everything you could imagine. Um, the cost of one is $26,000. Um, it comes with three years of insurance. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a full motorcycle. Um and they have about 2,000 volunteers there. I think 175 of them have these ambicycles. Mm-hmm. And these ambicycles can cover a huge range. So when you do have an emergency, God forbid, you call 1221, which is the emergency line number. And one of these ambicycles, which are spread out through the entire country, can just zip over to wherever you are, even if there's traffic, and get there within about three minutes um, on average. And they they really do get, you know, their, their first um, first response team. So what they do is they get there, they get there and they, they save the life until the, the, until the, the ambulance gets there. Right. Right. So. Right. So that was going to be my question to you, which is what is the role of United Hatzalah? What role does it play in a life-threatening situation uh, between when the patient is fallen ill or if something happens, there's some sort of emergency until the ambulance gets there? What, what's that What's that role? So they're the first response unit. They really just get there as soon as possible. Um, they get there in three minutes. And when, the ambu- and when the ambulance gets there after about 10 or 12 minutes, the patient is okay. He is, you know, in a somewhat stable situation. Right. And then the ambulance. So they don't actually transport to patients to the hospital. Exactly. They really just act as like, let's see what's going on. Let's stabilize the patient. And then the ambulance will get there. Is that real? I mean, I read that um, on the website. That's true that, that response time in Israel for an ambulance could be up to 10 minutes. That's like 100%. a really long time. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, look at, in Jerusalem, the streets are very cramped. Yeah. There's a lot of traffic. Right. And the streets are so narrow. It could take you sometimes five minutes just to go one block. Right. I mean, you can sometimes see that in New York City. So the advantage, that's true, <laughs> the advantage of the ambicycle is that it could weave in and out of traffic. Exactly. And, and I'm thinking about all those narrow alleyways. I'm thinking about, um, you know, especially, let's say, in the old city. I mean, it would be there. really difficult for an ambulance to get through. Yeah, in an emergency. it's almost impossible. They, I mean, they have a special ambulance in the old city that can go through those thin streets. But there are a few ambicycles in the old city. They even have a few in the west, eastern Jerusalem. And um, they're really just all over the place. They get there as soon as possible, whether or not there's traffic. And that really makes a huge difference. You right. know, when someone's having a heart attack, God forbid, right. they can just get there 
exactly, you know, right before, right before something terrible happens. And do you, the, do and you know, Aaron, if the uh, react, if the response by, let's say, the ambulance, Magin David Adom, I'm assuming, has has been positive to the intervention of United Hatzalah? They want United Hatzalah to be there. It helps them. They they assist Magin David Adom. Magin David Adom also has a first response unit, but Magin David Adom's main um, point out there is to have ambulances. They right. have hundreds of them in Jerusalem, all over the country, um, and that's really what they so do. So once the ambulance gets there, United Hatzalah takes a step back. They and take a okay. step back. But the other thing is that United Hatzalah is completely free. Mm-hmm. They do not charge one cent. Um, on the other hand, Magin David Adom does. They charge right. about 400 shekels, um, and that's another huge factor for people to call in Hatzalah. Because, again, it is free. Which is why United Hatzalah needs our help. That is exactly why, and that is one of the reasons why we continuously do this uh, Race to Save Lives, because we need to help those people out there. Right. Let's talk about the other unique um, thing (laughs) to United Hatzalah, which is the Life Compass GPS system. And uh, what does that GPS system do? Okay, so this GPS system was created a few years ago. Um, by Israeli scientists, and what it does is it's basically an app on your on a medic cell phone, where the medic can tell the system exactly if they're on you know if they're walking, if they're in a car, a boat, a helicopter, ambu cycle, ambulance, and it calculates how fast the that person can get to the accident from wherever they are from and based on what vehicle they're in. So, for example, if they're in the ambicycle, it knows that they are five miles away and it'll take them about two minutes to get there. Right. um, While they have an ambulance that's about one one minute away, um, but there's traffic. So all the So it knows to send it to the ambicycle as opposed to the ambulance. Um, And then, you know, once the guy gets there, he can say, hey, listen, I'm at the I'm at the scene. The ambulance doesn't even need to come anymore. Or, you know, if it's really bad, they can send in the helicopter or whatever it need be, um, and it can alert the nearest guy. That's really, so it's, that's really it's cool. Really it's like cool. a GPS tracker. It's a GPS so tracker. So all, yeah. all of the medics, the volunteer medics, are clued into this system that shows, that can sh- so that the, people can see where they are. Exactly. And there's a whole command center in Jerusalem, and if you visit it, um, you can see the monitor where every single um, accident is. That's wild. It's, it's really cool. That's and wild. And if you're a medic, you can be alerted if there's an emergency around the corner. Exactly. That's wild. That's really wild. Um, so let's get back to the race for a minute. Okay. Um, you wanted to raise, you said, $520,000. What is that money going to pay for? That is going to go for uh, 20 ambicycles. Um, like I said... United Solar tries to get as many ambicycles as they can because that's mm-hmm. what really makes a difference. Right. You have a lot of ambulances in Israel, but they can't get to the accident as soon as possible. So they really need these ambicycles to zip in and out of lanes right. and try and save these lives as fast as possible. And uh, if people want to find out more about the race, they can go to your website. Yep, race to save lives.com. That's R A C E. T O S A V E L I V E S. That was very good. That was very good. You, <laughs> you spelled that very well. Race to save lives.com. 
And um, and you said United Hetzalah is an independent, non-profit, fully volunteer EMS organization. Yeah. Totally free, based on donations. Based on donations. We need every cent out there. Anyone who, like I said before, um, $16, that's all it takes to save a life. If you do the math, the budget's $3.5 million. They save 200,000 lives. Comes out to about sixteen dollars. Wow! Um, and you could go on our website and sponsor a runner, spon- you know, sponsor anonymous, anonymously, however you want. But every dollar will make a huge difference. So if you're listening out there, you know, please help us out. It really will make a difference. One other thing that I think is so unique about United Hatzalah is you've got Arabs and Jews working together side by side, um, breaking down religious barriers saving as many lives as possible without regard to race or religion or anything like that. When you went on the call, did you experience something like that? Um, yeah, we, we didn't care who it was. We didn't look at, you know, what religion they were, what skin color they were. We really just cared about saving their lives. And every single United Hatsala volunteer thinks the same way. In, and regardless of what time it is, you know, in the middle of the night, They'll wake up from their cell phone. Um, they'll know they have a, a call. They don't care who it is, where it is. They just run. They go, and they, they, they just try and save as many lives as possible, regardless of who it is. Wow. So it's a really special organization. If you want to know more about United Hatzalah, you can visit the website at israelrescue.org, israelrescue.org. And uh, some last words about the race. Um, we really would encourage everyone out there to sign up. It's going to be very fun. Um, there will be about 1,500 people there, lots of fun entertainment after the race. Um, and you're more than welcome to bring your family. It's going to be a lot of fun. And, you, again, you could sign up at racetosavelives.com. Again, that's racetosavelives.com. Thank you. And it's on Sunday, June 9th Sunday, at Roosevelt June 9th Field. At Roosevelt Island. Roosevelt uh, Island. Roosevelt Island. Um, I say the word Roosevelt. I think them all. I think Roosevelt Field. Did I say Roosevelt Field before? It's Roosevelt Island, just to clear that up. Yeah. And um, it's starting at 10 a.m. All right. Aaron, thank you so much for telling us about the organization, telling us about the race, and you should continue to do great things. Thank you. Okay, well, we're, hopefully will. We're going to be back with some more something to talk about right after this.
Welcome back to Something to Talk About, everybody. I'm your host, Randy Wartelski, and I thank you so much for joining us here at the Nahum Siegel Network. We've been talking about reaching out to your fellow Jew and how one person can make a difference in the lives of others. And with me in the studio now, I have a very, very special woman, Mrs. Didi Benel. Didi Benel is the Educational Director of Student Programs at the Ramaz Upper School. She's a 26-year veteran of the school. Didi has taken students all over the country, including New Orleans, and she'll tell you what she and her students did in Whitwell, Tennessee, and how she got the opportunity for her students to meet Elad Shalit and his army platoon. Didi, welcome to the show. Randy, thank you. Um, I know you started with Whitwell, so certainly I'm not going to wind the wheel back too far. So I will address your question, and then I'll just have to do what I do best, go backwards. Um, Whitwell, Tennessee, and all that I do happens because of students. And uh, when one hears the number 26, it's almost overwhelming. But it really is the students at Ramaz, and I'm going to assume students everywhere, who really are the motivational force between everything I ever aspired to do and eventually was able to uh, turn them into reality. Uh, Whitwell, Tennessee happened because of the film Paper Clips. Um, we had some graduates involved in it, and one of the sponsors was an alum of ours as well. And off we went to see it, an ordinary night at the movies. No popcorn, just a good night at a fun flick called Paper Clips. No sooner had we finished watching the film, and anyone who hasn't seen it, I urge you to see it, uh, when the kids said, so, Mrs. Benel, when are we going? And that's how things seem to always start. I get the lump in the throat, and they they have this exuberance, this energy, um, and it's wonderful because it's missing all of the limitations that we as adults seem to have, our fears, our concerns, and that's the purity, the, the, the absolute essence of the beautiful part of working with kids. Uh, they don't leave you alone. And we did make contact with people, and of course, with oil, there's no tea in that. Oh, uh, right. If you're from Tennessee. If you are from Tennessee, there's no tea. Off we went, um, not that easy. Uh, How many students did you take? Uh, I believe, if I can think back, we were high. We were 18. And this was approximately how long ago? I'm trying to think back. It's easily about 10 years ago. I stalled for a moment because time lapses, and I, I don't seem to sense it or feel it. Uh, we did go, and what was interesting about the makeup of the 18 students is that each, in his or her own way, was uh, carried with them the message of the Shoah. They didn't wear it on their sleeves, so to speak, because the new generation knows stories and has seen movies, but doesn't do, let's say, what our grandparents did. And, and many of them were named for uh, relatives who had been murdered in the Shoah. They went with, they were so enthusiastic because here they understood they were going to a town. Linda Hooper was the principal. Yeshiva University ultimately awarded her um, a doctorate, an honorable, right, a doc- right. an honorable doctorate of source, whatever the correct title is. She was a fascinating woman because what she understood is that there was something wrong in Whitwell. And I say it with uh, in tongue-in-cheek because that was only part of the cultural differences that we tried to understand as we went into this all-white Appalachian town. Um, and let's just remind the listeners who may have not seen the movie or haven't seen the film in, in a long time, what did the students in the high school do? Thank you. I always assume, I make these assumptions that everybody always knows what I'm talking about. The students of that town, um, again, when I 
I don't mean any cultural bias at all. It's not my style. But it indeed was a small community in Appalachian town that had never really met a Jew before. And what Linda Hooper found is they really had no diversity at all. This is not that there was something about having seen a person of color or a person of a different faith. It simply was the locale out in the mountains. I mean, for us, for the New Yorkers, our, our major, our plane stopped in Chattanooga. I mean, our kids were flipping out. They wanted to see the Chattanooga choo-choo train. That's what I was thinking. And then uh, that's what it was. And then the next day, one of the pastors from Whitwell, and there was an elegance about him. His van arrives, and off we go. We changed time zones from Chattanooga to Whitwell, which was another, you know, it was remarkable. I mean, this is really a New York kind of crowd. We have a problem. We honestly do not understand that there are many other states to the United States of America. Well, for the moment we arrived, the students who starred in the film, so it was definitely over 10 years ago, they were seniors at that time. And it started with the encouragement of learning about the Shoah, and they did a magnificent job. They became famous for what they did. As a matter of fact, the car, the authentic car that actually transported Jews to the death camps because they... The rail was, car. The rail car. There was a journalist who heard about it. So it, it was getting a lot of press. And here were my kids, kids to kids. And uh, we were excited to meet with him. And we took one Rabbi Mayer Moskowitz along with us. And anyone who knows Rabbi Mayer knows that he's a jubilant, exciting, lover of life person. But they also don't know, many of them, that the rabbi saw his own father murdered in front of his eyes. We kept some of this as our kind of private secret. Because, indeed, we were there to meet wonderful American youngsters who felt that learning about the Holocaust was something that they had to do. The monument is magnificent. I know that many youth tours stop now to see it, but we were really the first. From an Orthodox Yeshiva Day school, this was big time. There was dialogue, there was conversation, and then, of course, we went into the car. And we looked at the clips and understood that with each clip, a letter the had clips been that the students collected. Yeah, and there were 11,000, by the way, because we know that the statistics of the number of people murdered are beyond our own victims. Right. And so it was more global, as you'd say. But then when we finally meet in the library, the moment, um, I guess, that became the stellar moment of the trip for us and for those youngsters is after seeing they were teenage rapping, they were learned, they went to the the car, there was the tears when we sat down around them and then they began to introduce themselves by their Hebrew names to share with these youngsters that they indeed were the inheritors, the living inheritors of this brutal legacy that we carry with us that has affected all of us for so many generations. And there was a silence in the room, but this time it wasn't a silence of being awkward. Um, Who are you? Who am I? It was a silence of honor and dignity because these children finally said, we now understand that our clips, even with the letters, are not equal to meeting the children who are the living proof of the legacy and the survival. And then when Mayor Moskowitz, who indeed is a gentleman to know, said and told his story, the tears shared were not hysterical teenage tears that were dramatic, they were tears of the authenticity of that collaboration. We then said, please come to New York. And they got all excited, and Linda Hooper was excited. 
And yes, indeed. They visited us in New York. Wow. They came to our school. They sat in in Judaic studies classes. We went down to the Statue of Liberty because where else you go when two groups are interested in the symbol of freedom? Right. Down to Ellis Island we went. There was laughter. There was humor. There was teenage camaraderie. But above all, it was enveloped by the brilliance of what they did and the fact that, as one young man said, we're not just clips which we loved and respected, but we are the inheritors of the legacy of our families and our people. The union of these two groups was why when they say, hey, there's a Benel trip, let's go. These are the trips, should I say, the missions, what the children lead me to do. You can't say no. Yes, so my, my question to you is going to be coming back a little bit. How do you inspire these students to reach out and do something to whether whether it be in I, I know you, you took a trip to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina um, and I'm sure the story that you tell of Whitwell Tennessee is just one among many that you have about wherever you've been with your students my question was going to be how do you inspire and teach the young people to get out there and do something but you're saying for you it's the other way around Yes, it's the other way around, and I must admit, and this may reveal my age, but if there's anyone who went to school with me, which, of course, is my sin of Ramaz, that I'm a Flatbush graduate, knows me too, me too. Yeah, <laughs> that um, my inspiration really came from the people who are the mentors and the builders of this phenomenal school. And it would I, I would be remiss in saying that when I started out, I was kind of like young and quite impressionable, I met one Dr. Noam Shudavsky, his partner in crime, so to speak, if that would be the way to use, if that's an inappropriate term to use, I apologize. Of course, um, Rabbi Chaskal Lukstein, because they believed that ultimately the mission of our school is to have children, and the rabbi very much likes to quote, and it's in all of our mission statements. He, uh, at the closing of the mission statement, is a quote from Isaiah whom shall I send and whom will go for us? And he wants the Ramaz graduates to respond in a like manner and answer as Isaiah did, here I am, send me. So the first mission was really to the Soviet Union. I take a breath. Um, what was I doing going to the And I'm not talking Soviet Union post the end of the Cold War, but before. And I remember Noam saying, no, 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 you'll go with kids, they were 16, and don't go with many colleagues. You really should be going alone to different cities because you can be stronger alone and you can really do more alone. And I remember just nodding and thinking, yeah, this is what you do. Me, it was me a and given. a bunch of kids. Yeah, teenagers, 16. They led me through the Soviet Union from arriving in what was then Leningrad, and I would name the students, but I don't think that that would be politically correct. And we were told we could bring items that were Jewish in nature. And as soon as we were stopped and our luggage was opened uh, and questioned and they went to remove things, it was the kids who stepped forward with all the training and did what had to be done in order to pass, let's say, certain items that were well-received that allowed our luggage to go through. It was the kids. They sang. They taught. We were underground. 
We went to the underground yeshiva at the time. They spoke to people. They never spoke in the rooms. And as I watched them, I was able to get stronger. Randy, half the time, I really didn't know exactly what train I was getting on or off of. We were there. They were great. There's a strength in youth that makes you capable of doing. You ask if I inspire. If I know they're they're getting it, so to speak, then I'm fine. And what do you think they take away from these experiences? Their own power. Their infinite power. Their power to recognize their own strengths. There are so many times when you hear teenagers are, you know, down because perhaps they didn't make a team or they didn't succeed in a certain class. Or, But when they go on these missions, they first, it's almost as if a mirror were put in front of them and they understand, well, Wow, just my, just the amount of knowledge that I have, the amount of svarim that I handle, like picking up a telephone book, um, my comfort in Hebrew, my passion for Israel. There's no doubt about it. I speak about it. I'm free. I'm open. And so many societies that we traveled in, there were years later that I went back to Mints and Pints with a core group of students only four years ago, crossing borders, now with a supposedly no longer a Soviet Union. And these kids found they can speak, they can reach out, they can change lives just because they can speak Hebrew, because they can open a safer with comfort, because teen to teen there is no match. So if all we have to do is, excuse me, make the arrangements, security guards, raise the funds, you hear that people out there, raise the funds, the kids want to go. And they come back to respond to your question knowing, without even talking about it, that they found an inner strength, that they can affect change, that they can make others more aware, that they can enrich lives, that has nothing to do with scoring on a team, getting a lead role, getting into a best school, which we aspire for them. That's a given. But we're not a school. I've always been taught at Ramaz. If we don't also educate our kids to be empowered human beings, when Nachshon Voxman was kidnapped, of the many, kids turned to me and said, so what do you think we ought to do? I said, okay, call the press. Let's get down to the United States. I should call the press. They'll listen to me. I remember the sentence. And I said, yeah. So the classic line, again, I can't say the young lady's name. She's now a married woman with several children. She said her great line was, I called NBC, and because of me, they came and they did. Wow. So does that mean that we freed anybody? No, and that's to get on to Gilad Shalit. A rupture in the world community who cares about international behavior in terms of breaking the codes of military law, not allowing for visits by the International Red Cross, hearing nothing, kidnapping off of ones. Everyone knows the facts. What could we do? Uh, not all that much, except more for ourselves. Um, we decided to stand opposite the Iranian mission for five years in what was called a prayer vigil. We were not allowed to make noise. We never wanted to do that at a quarter to eight in the morning with a bunch of teenagers. Um, we handed out informational cards. We tried to raise his name. Uh, we followed the rules. Inherently, it was for us. Maybe that's almost selfish. 
we just responded in a way that really spoke to our neshamas, our neshamot. I had an opportunity to attend an assembly that you were very involved in, where Gilad Shalit and his platoon came and met with an audience of people who had rallied on Gilad's behalf. And in that assembly, there were many alums of the school who came back and spoke about what they did. And to actually be able to see that maybe some of their tefillot helped in Gilad's release, or maybe something that they did, a letter that they wrote, was something that you could see as alums definitely resonated with them. Was that your feeling as well? It was, but as alums being somewhat older, they really understood that big adol, in the bigger picture, what they did was a, filling a personal void. Knowing that they didn't let, Rabbi Yoshua Baxt always said, let business go on as usual. So in a way, there was a sense of feeling self-centered a little bit, like what I'm doing. You know, we always like results. We're very results-oriented. I studied, I get a good mark. I don't get a good mark, I, prote- I protest. Um, I'm a good friend. Why wasn't someone a good friend back to me? We are very results-oriented. They understood that this would be uh, an activity that was, as I call it, kind of selfish, that it it, it took some kind of a hole inside of them and said, you know, I'm stopping my clock a little bit. And that's what it's really about. You know, a clock is an ultimate, the ultimate measuring tool. Uh, meters, uh, timers, blood pressures, everything is timed. I was taught a long time ago, actually, by uh, the woman who runs Beaker Hall at Lenox Hill Hospital, which is something we do during our lunchtime periods, that time is an indicator of sorts, because taking time means you're giving time. And if anything, these youngsters understood is that they were taking time from their lives in order to give something and ultimately was giving something to themselves. You know, the Enanili Azmili, I better darn well take care of myself. They'd love to say they would be late to second period, but God help them if they were. Imanila Atimani, which is a scary thing that we're worried about in terms of a generational style nowadays, that there's a huge sense of the me being the centrif- centrifugal force in many people's lives. But most of all, also, you got to get up and do it. I, I have a test. I have a, all the excuses. What I have found is these children are phenomenal in managing, balancing, and reorchestrating their lives in order to become involved, in order to say, this. I, tonight there was a... We have this major pantry thing when a kid one day spotted much of the food being thrown out after lunch at school and said, we got to stop that. We have a pantry program to a wonderful pantry that's uptown. Well, you know, Didi, the students look to you for leadership in becoming leaders. And I want to know that last morning that they went to the Iranian mission to Davin and to hand out cards for the release of Gilad Shalit, that last morning, what happened to you when they found out that he was released? What did they say to you, and what did you respond? Uh, very mixed emotions. First of all, Randy, if you remember, it was around Sukkot time, and I don't know, you want to call this reward? I don't know how people get reward in life, but personally at home, my phone was ringing through that night. We Calls from Israel. There were kids who were doing their year in Israel. Did I hear? Did I hear? Did I know? Did I hear? Um, I, I was overwhelmed by it, and another sense of being overwhelmed is 
I know you can all appreciate what morning is like for teenagers, and I'll I'll get to that last last time out. Every time I rounded the bend at 40th, because uh, it would stop at Grand Central, and I would get out at 40th and walk. I don't know. Maybe it doesn't speak well for me. I always said, oh, no one's going to be there this Meaning time. Meaning when you were on your way to yeah, the mission. Yeah, to the mission, because we would get as far as uh, Grand Central Station. That's how the whole Stanford crowd got involved in this, our commuters, as if they're not commuting far enough at the 6-0-something from Stanford. When they meet, when they first met me at Grand Central, I said, where are you going? You talk about inspiring kids. They said, well, we take this to, I said, no, you don't. Turn around and go to 40th. Uh-huh. And that's how the Connecticut crowd became, became the Wednesday oh, morning regulars. It was, it was amazing. And if once Connecticut could go, how could Manhattan not go? And they went rain, snow, sleet, bitter cold. Yeah. Really cold. Um, so the phone was going throughout the night because as anyone, you know, this is, we didn't really know. There were so many missed times of a bargain, of a trade, and the the enormous uh, moral dilemma that everyone faced in terms of, you know, the trade. But the telephone was ringing throughout the night. And what the kids decided to do is go back one more time. Because we had kind of, after six, five years, people sort of recognized us. There was a janitorial staff that used to wave to us, coffee people. We got thumbs up and other fingers. Okay, but people used to, and we went back a last time with the card that was changed. And what, and did, what had the card said when you used to new, give them out? When we used to give them out, it uh, started out with uh, photos of several that we then later found out had been murdered immediately. And then it had only Gilad's photo and on back telephone numbers and website addresses to call to protest the fact that minimally speaking, he had been kidnapped, and two, that there were no visits from the International Red Cross. As the kids said, they felt they had about 10 seconds to say, Gilad Shalit, soldier, kidnapped, illegal, no visits by the International so Red Cross. So now not only the students, not only are the students going and davening themselves, but they are spreading out cards to countless others, encouraging them to do the same, encouraging them to keep on doing, to encourage others, encourage others, etc. We had cabs giving little toots. But ultimately, the last day, the new card was released, and it said, Gilad is home. Wow. And the few people that had, you know, you pass the same street. Now, mind you, the kids change. They graduate. They change. They, all the be it, didn't really, bottom line, ever really know probably who Gilad Shali was. They just got excited with us. Right. But we did go that last time as a kind of a... Um, kind of a feeling uh, of sorts. And these are experiences that change a person's life. I mean, going forward, you know, as we said, these alums, these are experiences they'll never forget. You asked about Katrina. Yeah. Kid motivated, totally. I one of the one of the young uh, women who motivates now teaching in the lower school because they eventually did a book day about you know floods and things like that. They came and said, in early September, we're sure you've heard about New Orleans. So, I mean, who didn't? So when are we going? Hmm. And there it was again. I promise That's that you. question that keeps coming back to you. There it was. I said, well, girls, what exactly do you mean? No, 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 we, we have to go there. And I don't mean this in, to disparage any group or any organization that really followed suit with supplies and visits. I always say that we went when it was very, very wet. Because it was that Christmas which coordinated that year exactly with Hanukkah. Because the thinking of the kids, not only would that work for us because it coordinated with Hanukkah and our winter break, 
but that it would be a time to relieve so many of the Christian missionaries who were there to celebrate. And we could just plain, Ramaz, take over. Wow. And take over they did. But it would, because it was Hanukkah, one of the most amazing experiences was going to the, uh, the, it was the ward that had been most damaged and the shul there had been completely destroyed. Those famous images of the Torahs being in rowboats. So we went there to Davin Mincha to light the Hanukkah menorah. And that moment, when you say change children, to light that menorah in that damp, wet shul, having heard that the Sifrei Torahs, the Sifrei Torahs were removed on rowboats. If you want to ask what would stay with the children, that would. Some members of the synagogue came, and when they saw the menorah being lit, they really felt that perhaps new light would yet dawn upon this destroyed shul. And Is this I, the same shul that just had a reopening? Yeah, how'd you know? Back? Right. Yeah. I just heard that from Eliza. It was her uncle who took us around, and she said to me, she met me the other day. We were at a wedding, and she said, I have to tell you, the shul opened. So now yes. you got to go back. Oh, for sure. Now you got to take those students back, and they got to see the shul up and running. So we, we, we work very hard in the, there's a yeshiva there run by Chabad. We work to clean also the yeshiva and did a lot of work. And to see our kids with masks on their face, grime all over, and not a word from them except, okay, what next? What do we do next? And I remember speaking to several of the students afterwards, and they said, well, we just go back. We sort of entered, and we exit. But these people stay here. And the rest is teku. I'm sure it has stayed with them forever and ever. Didi, thank you so much for joining us today. You you definitely have been inspiring so many young people to be future leaders and they get their inspiration from you and you from them and I from you as well. Thank you for joining us everybody today on Something to Talk About and we hope we've given you something to talk about. Let's get-